Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-day unipolarity is precisely like that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the U.S. I'm Andrew Collingwood. I write for Bornbrook magazine and other online outlets on geostrategy, economics and British politics. Hi, my name is Philip Pilkington. I'm a macroeconomist who spent nearly a decade working in investment management. Both of us believe that the world is undergoing a once-a-century geopolitical and macroeconomic shift. After decades of American leadership, the unipolar world is finally ending. Since World War II, America has set the terms of global trade, and it's backed these up with its control over international institutions and its enormous military power. But things are changing. China is still rising. Russia has reawakened. Europe, America's longtime partner, is in long-term decline. Each week, we'll be dissecting three stories that illustrate the shift. From how semiconductor shortages in Taiwan influence Japanese military spending, to how a new scramble for rare earth metals is remaking US foreign policy. We'll be talking about economics and geopolitics, but most importantly, we'll be talking about how they influence each other, how resource competition drives the great game of empires and alliances, and how that story is the great emerging tale of the 21st century. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, a new report suggests that the Chinese might be about to bankroll a naval base in Argentina. As the Green Revolution takes hold, can we even build the supply lines for the huge quantities of metals and minerals we'll need? But first, is the World Trade Organization crumbling? The Wall Street Journal this week had a very instructive article, I thought, because it's in the Wall Street Journal and it was written by the chief economics commentator of the Wall Street Journal. This article argued that the WTO, the World Trade Organization, is crumbling as an arbiter of free trade. Most people know that the WTO sets the rules for free trade, but it also acts as a dispute resolution mechanism. So when two countries have an argument about what's fair within the system, the WTO can resolve that. Last month, the WTO ruled against the US, not once but twice. And the U.S. has simply swatted aside these rulings. The first one was about Trump-era tariffs on steel and aluminium. And the second one was a U.S. requirement that products made in Hong Kong had to be marked as made in China. And the WTO ruled against the U.S. on both of those counts, said that it had violated its obligations within trade agreements. Now... The Wall Street Journal tried to kind of pin this on China, tried to say, ultimately, this is China's fault because for ages now they've been gaming the system. I would argue, though, that that's something of a canard, okay, because the US has been quite happy for China to undertake in these practices, these restrictive and preferential practices for decades now. It's been well known what the Chinese do in terms of trade, but America's been perfectly happy on that because it supposedly believes in free trade. Now, however, that the US has decided that China is a geopolitical threat, all of a sudden these trade practices become a problem. And 
The Wall Street Journal claims the U.S. has lost patience with the WTO's ability to tame China and bring it into and bring it into the system. I don't think so at all. I think that this is another chess piece that's being played in the geopolitical game at the moment. I'm not sure how you feel about that, Philip. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that there's been trouble at the World Trade Organization since Trump was elected to office, and I suppose that's when kind of the trade drama started. I think the um, China actually won um, an arbitration against the US on some of the Trump era policies. I, I think it's as you say, I mean, these complaints uh, against China, which we've been hearing since the Trump era, they've always been a little bit thin, I think. I mean, not not, not to say that the sentiment behind them isn't real. I think there are obvious uh, reasons why an American would be concerned about losing a great deal of their manufacturing base to China. But that wasn't really China's fault. That was the fault of a free trade agreement signed by America. That was a, a policy choice by American leaders. And I think during the Trump administration, there was an increasingly increasing tendency to kind of spin it as if it was China's fault. And I always thought that was very unproductive because the when Trump shifted the debate, I thought there was actually a very good opportunity for America to look at itself uh, in the mirror and say, would we potentially have a constructive industrial policy? Would we would we try and uh, reshore some of this manufacturing? I, I thought the same thing during Brexit in Britain as well. Um, but it did deteriorate, I think, over time, partly due to Trump's personality, I, I'd say, but also for other reasons. And it deteriorated into kind of this blame game. But the fact of the matter is that currency manipulation and so on, it's it's always a it, an unusual thing to kind of classify. There's always currency pegs. There's always currency interventions. There was famously in the 1980s, there was the Plaza Accord and the Counter Plaza Accord with China. This didn't violate any World Trade Organization principles. With Japan, right? Um, Excuse me. Sorry, with Japan. With Japan. So it, it really seems to me that the, the things that the US are now doing, I mean, the most obvious being the recent chip ban, these are kind of blatant acts of economic warfare. Now, whatever the trade organization, the World Trade Organization allows, it is certainly there to stop and prevent trade wars because when it was put into place by the Americans mainly in the form of uh, GATT after World War II, um, it was explicitly put in place to stop the protectionist trade wars of the sort that, that, that we saw in the 1930s and that contributed to and or caused the Great Depression. So I think we really are moving toward those type of policies now with the US taking the lead on pursuing them. And so I think this kind of this kind of false equivalence that maybe Greg Ip and the Wall Street Journal is putting forward is just that. I mean it's 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 comparing apples and oranges, I think. Yeah, I think this fairly clear that this is an example of geopolitics driving economics and trade relations. It's a point that you've made many times, Philip that far more economics is driven by geopolitics these days than it is by uh, economic policy per se. I think, as I said before, the US was perfectly happy for decades with these practices, with the arrangements that it had with, with China. There might have been a bit of grumbling. There was often a bit of grumbling on, you know, from places like the Bernie Sanders right, uh, left, or the, the Pat Buchanan right, for example. But generally, the, the Washington consensus was that free trade was good, and ultimately, it was so profitable that it was, you know, the downs, the, the certain side effects were worth putting up with. That view has only changed once Washington has 
identified China as a geopolitical threat. Now it becomes a problem. Now the US must take matters into its own hands. The WTO isn't enough. You know, the WTO hasn't managed to tame China, as Greg Ipp put it in his article. But I think there's something broader at stake here. Free trade in America has been a, 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 or globalization has been a longstanding goal of America's. Um, people, as you did mention, the GATT or GATT uh, after the war, which was the WTO's success, uh, predecessor organization. I think it goes even farther back than that. If you look at the uh, during the First World War when America was considering entering, and especially Woodrow Wilson was making the argument for entering, one of the reasons that he wanted to impose a new global system on the West to move away from a balance of power diplomacy towards a more open system was that Wilson understood that the United States, because of its geographical and resource endowments wasn't reliant on conquest or geographical expansion for security in the same way that some European countries were. But it did need for its capital and its goods to be able to flow freely across borders and especially imperial borders, which at the time there was quite often imperial preference trading systems. So I see this as you know, free trade as being a really long-standing goal of the US. And after the war, of course, when it became clear that the Soviet Union was a, a potential regional hegemon in in on the Eurasian landmass, and it became clear that the US was going to have to counter the Soviet Union, the, the US put a great deal of effort also into building a, a, a global order that would be aligned with its own aims and free trade and and globalization to a certain degree were part of that. However, now that we've passed that time and, uh, and we've passed the hubristic period after the Cold War when the neocons and the project for the new American century decided they want to, wanted to remake the whole world in America's image and free trade and globalization and, and, and the liberalization of economies was crucial to that. Now that we've passed that period and now that well, America's been deindustrialized to a certain degree. You know, industry as a percentage of non-farm payrolls in America has dropped from 16% in 1990 in half down to 8% now, uh, which is causing all sorts of problems for uh, wage stagnation, for America's productive capacity, its own security indeed. It, it simply jettisoning the World Trade Organization and indeed free trade. It's decided that this isn't good for it anymore. It's nothing to do with China not playing by the rules. It's because America's decided that eh, this isn't working for us anymore. We're going to move on to something else. Yeah, I think so. And and then that raises the question of the chicken and the egg. Um, have they have they decided to wind back on free trade because they've realized China's a threat? Or have they realized China's a threat because they want to wind back on free trade? I'm not sure the answer to that question, but it's certainly one worth raising. Maybe it's a bit of both. The problem, I think, is as you raise it, it's as it's always said, the business of America is business, right? And I'm not really clear what a global a global America would look like if it's putting up the protectionist tariffs. Before it came out of its shell in the 20th century, it was quite a protectionist place, but it was a very, very different country then. Small landholders um, didn't have much huge business. When the big businesses started to develop is when they started to get, as you said, the Wilsonian idea into their head. 
of trading with the rest of the world and, and the desire to take apart the British imperial system and so on to be able to do it. So I don't know how America would define itself in a world where it wasn't able to deploy the clear business acumen that the American people have. I'm not, I'm not convinced by it as a strategy at all. And the other, the other problem, I think, is America's not the world. Uh, the world has learned a great deal from America in the 20th century, especially in the, uh, in the past 30 or 40 years. And a lot of the world has, has learned how to, how to trade like America, how to do business like America. I mean, I think especially of China, but also of Japan, Germany, and so on. And just because America has decided it's no longer in its interest to engage in, if not free trade, relatively free trade, does that mean that all these countries are just going to stop? I don't see any reason why China wouldn't just continue to trade. I think that's exactly what they want to do. And if you give me, on the one hand, a country that's throwing up tariff barriers and protectionist barriers and so on with the rest of the world, and another, on the other hand, uh, by the way, which has had declining manufacturing share and some of the problems with its economy that you've highlighted. And then on the other hand, you have this upstart power that only seems to be expanding in these areas and at the same time is looking outwards and is willing to engage in trade with basically anybody who turns up at the doorstep. I can't really see the first uh, power uh, winning out in that scenario. So I think, again, I'm not a dogmatic free trader by any sense. I think there's been enormous problems with globalization. I'm very sympathetic to people who talk about industrial policy and, and some aspects of reshoring. But I just, I'm not convinced that this is the way to go about it. I think, to be fair to Greg Ibb, or, or perhaps that's the wrong way to put it, to be fair to the sources from whom Greg Ibb was getting his information, they see the world developing not in terms of drawing up the tariff barriers, but trade continuing to be free, um, you know, globalization continuing to be a thing, but for it to be much more a la carte. So for individual states to be able to choose with whom they trade rather than, you know, the WTO rules where things are equalized, you know, across a a range of different products, services, and uh, nations as well. And the feeling is that the United States can trade much better with countries like it, uh, countries with, um, with similar outlooks than it can with, say, China, for example. I'm not sure whether that's true. I think that that's a matter of uh, internal policy. I think Germany, for example, is quite a lot like America. It's a, it's a liberal democracy. It's, um, it's got a... Of course, it's a slightly different culture, but not as much as the difference in culture between, say, the United States and China. Um, and yet it's done extremely well out of liberalizing its trade, right? I mean, you know, Germany's become the preeminent power in Europe again. Uh, likewise with Japan, that's a very different culture again, but it's still a, a liberal democracy. And it seems to me that Japan has done well about uh, in trade as well. I think the big difference is internal policy. And I see all of this, all of these issues related to the WTO as being driven by geopolitics, not driven by trade. Otherwise, you know, this would have happened when these things were obviously a problem 20, 30 years ago. It wouldn't have taken them a quarter of a century to come to terms with them and do something about it. I mean, maybe, but ultimately trade, I know, obviously, trade and geopolitics is interrelated, hence the podcast, but ultimately, it is a kind of a separate thing. If you want to pick and choose who you do business with based on your friends and, or your enemies, 
you're not going to do as good business as the guy who is non-discriminatory. I mean, what you're talking about is a form of discrimination. I don't mean that in some pejorative sense to beat up on a country that wants to engage in it. I just mean that is the way to think about it. And if you have two little villages and one of them engages in discriminatory commercial practices and the other has an open relatively open market, the one with the relatively open market is going to do better. So this is, again, the the problem of uh, obviously you want to take economics into account when you're engaging in geopolitical calculations. But if you allow geopolitical calculations to completely override economics, you'll get very, very bad economic outcomes. And by the way, vice versa, because we're, we're recorrecting from the opposite vice, which is to allow economics to overly dominate your geopolitics. But if you were to put a gun to my head and say, which is worse, letting economics override your geopolitics or letting geopolitics override your economics, it's, it's the latter. I'm almost certain it's the latter. I think you can live with with too much economics overriding your geopolitics. If you really go heavy on trying to control economic um, uh, trade and all that kind of thing in line with strict geopolitical goals, I think the law of unintended consequences is going to jump out from every corner. All that glitters is green. Well, it's interesting you should say that, but because I was also reading an article in uh, two articles in a week, you'll be amazed to hear that somebody born in Tyneside can manage that, uh, Philip. But um, I was reading an article in Foreign Affairs magazine, which is essentially the you know the U.S. foreign policy establishment's in-house journal. It was pointing out that the Biden ad- administration has now made several commitments in relation to the environment and climate change in areas such as electric vehicles and renewable energy and uh, becoming much more involved in the uh, COP conferences. It also pointed out that the European Union, Japan, South Korea, and even China have made varying degrees of uh, similar commitments. However, the problem with that is even if we, uh, some of our listeners might disagree, some of our listeners might agree, but let's just say that at the moment, for the purposes of this argument, that climate change is real, it's anthropogenic in nature, and there is something that mankind can do to change it or curtail it or reverse it. Let's accept those points for now. Even if we believe in all of those points, the essay in Foreign Policy magazine was saying that the infrastructure needed for all of this uh, electrification and uh, greenification of the electricity and energy system would require four times the critical minerals in the next 17 years, so that's between now and 2040, we would need to mine and refine and and, then package and make usable four times the volume of critical minerals that have been mined in the entirety of human history. So this includes things like copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium. It's It's a pretty big ask for us to be able to identify sources of this, build up mines, set up the refining process, which for a lot of these things isn't easy. And the article was basically looking at what that would mean for US foreign policy in relation to countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zambia, countries in South America like Peru and Chile. So I I think this is something else that's going to tie into U.S. trade and foreign policy as well, Philip? Yeah, I mean, I definitely share your skepticism about this um, very rapid pivot to um, 
electrical vehicles especially i mean this is a very new technology actually it's it's a very old technology electric vehicles have been around for, for almost as long as um as uh, fossil fuel vehicles but they've just always kind of failed edison built one it was perfectly functional but the batteries tended to catch fire and blow up or i, I can't remember what it was but the batteries was the batteries were always the problem in these things but having the functional ones that we have now the the teslas that you've probably seen outside your door they are relatively new ha- having evs used at this scale is relatively new um i mean how long has it been around for t- 10 to 15 years i mean really at tesla's in terms of seeing them drive around tesla's only been on my radar for maybe six years probably if you're in america that might be 10 i don't know but they're relatively new and and we seem to be kind of betting the farm on this uh, technology i'm not saying the technology itself doesn't work although there are still questions about evs one question is their depreciation rate for example uh, how long do they really last relative to a petrol vehicle which is an important question and ha- how much are they worth after a few years these could be exorbitantly expensive vehicles that find it very difficult to be commercially viable uh, unless they're luxury we'll see again the cheaper ones are only making making their way out now if those only last five years then you know could be a bit of a problem um but you're right. I mean, and and now the the plan apparently is to completely recenter our economy around digging these metals out of the ground and processing them and trying to figure out ways to secure them. I mean, the first step will probably be, as you say, do the metals exist? Is there enough productive capacity to put them in place? Can we imagine um, engaging in an industrial policy of that scale? It's it's not a domestic industrial policy. It's like an international one. It's very daunting at the very least. When cars came on the scene, you know, um, there were probably new components. Well, certainly one of the things that was needed that wasn't needed before was petroleum in, in large quantities. And we didn't really plan it. We didn't say, okay, we're going to retire all the horse and carts and we're going to uh, engage in this big plan to extract the petroleum. I mean, we, it kind of grew up organically, and but we're not talking about it like that. We're talking about it as if we have an almost kind of Gosplan-style communist plan to get rid of this stuff by a certain date, and that we're going to completely change the productive systems away from you know petroleum extraction and so on into these metals, and that there's definitely enough of these metals. We can definitely get them out. We can definitely process them. I mean, it's a lot, and it's a lot of eggs to put in one basket. I I don't know what you make of it. Well, yeah, I'm very interested in what it means geopolitically as well. So, you know, let's put put ourselves in a position by, say, 2040, 2050, when we should be a fair way. I mean, even if we're a bit late compared to the the GOS plan, um, as GOS plans usually were, um, we're still going to be at that stage tremendously reliant on electricity and on batteries for short-term electricity storage and perhaps hydrogen or, or liquefied air for grid-scale storage. We're going to have mostly uh, renewable energy. We're going to have millions of kilometers of copper wiring in you know even small countries because everything's going to be electrical. Um, what does that mean for foreign policy? And we were tremendously reliant on the Middle East for much of the second half of the 20th century. And in fact, in 1973, with the Yom Kippur War, in retaliation for US and Western support for Israel during that war, they went a long way to hammering Western economies. They caused a 
tremendous inflation. They caused economic hardship within the system by forming a cartel and ramping up the price of oil and gas. Is it possible that we have nickel producers or copper producers or, or, or producers of uh, you know uh, green energy related uh, things? I mean, we Britain's planning a huge solar farm in Morocco, I believe, at the moment, and is planning to you know build an interconnector. <laughs> Uh, from Morocco through the Atlantic, I guess across the Bay of Biscay all the way to Britain to draw energy from this. That kind of makes us reliant. And I don't see why what happened with oil in the second half of the 20th century can't happen with uh, these metals and you know certain key components, rare earths, for example, in the middle and the second half of the 21st century. And I could imagine a situation where there were similar outcomes, essentially. Yeah, but um, I'll I'll tell you one thing that's very, very different. It's kind of related to my last comment that this prior to this, when we transferred from you know horses effectively to um, petroleum uh, vehicles, it was an organic development, and the geopolitics followed the economics. As the um, petroleum became clearly more important because there was more demand for it, then the geopolitics pivoted to take an interest in these oil-rich regions. I think the real danger here is actually foreign policy people reading foreign policy magazines because foreign policy magazine is telling us what's going to happen in the future. They're telling us that the EV revolution and that the green revolution is definitely going to work. It's 100% going to work. It's not just going to work for us. It's also going to work for China. It's also going to work for Russia. And that basically kind of the implication that you draw from this is that you'd go and you'd, you'd try and pivot, I suppose, your foreign policy toward the, uh, the regions that have the, the metals and the rare earth materials that you're talking about. Well, okay, let's say you spend the next 10 years doing it and none of it works out. Um, you see, those are the dangers in making predictions like this. A lot of the time, you know, if you're back in the 1960s and you see, you know, the Jetsons and all that, and and everyone kind of thinks we'll be living, we'll have moon bases by 1985 or whatever date they put on it. I mean, people really did think that, and we kind of snicker at it now, but it wasn't that absurd. I mean, a man had just gone into space; they just landed a man on the moon a few years later. I mean, maybe you could have these these colonies or whatever but it didn't work out that way and yeah, i'm and still famous... waiting for my hoverboard from back to the future too. right I, I mean i remember david graber the anthropologist used to say where's my flying car i mean well i mean it's all well and good to have these ideas in your head but a lot of the time they don't work out now imagine if we'd uh, we'd made cold war policy based on the idea that we were definitely not maybe definitely going to have colonies on the moon so we started retooling our military structures so that they'd be moon capable um, so, like, everyone would watch Moonraker and they'd say, okay, that's exactly what we need to do in foreign policy terms. I think uh, the Cold War would have had a very different outcome if, if the uh, democratic nations had done that. So, I do kind of worry that um, the people might be making predictions uh, that might be slightly too big for their boots here. China's Gaucho Adventure. The Argentinian currency swap with China's back in the news. They've renewed it again, and it's got a lot more fanfare this time, actually. I think it kind of it flew under the radar before. Um, the, the currency swaps between uh, Argentina and China go back to 2011, actually, when uh, Christina Kirchner was, was president. So far as I can tell, back then they were mainly, um, they were mainly to do with, uh, 
with uh, you know easing the easing trade uh, between China and Argentina because Argentina is obviously an enormous soy producer, soybean producer, and uh, the Chinese eat a lot of soy. Last time it was renewed was in uh, February 2022, last year. Uh, it was coupled with a large um, spate of uh, Belt and Road investments, so it, it it kind of had a kind of conditionality attached to it. The interesting thing to ask about this, and I say ask because I don't know, no matter how much I read up about it, I, I can't tell, is is this a normal currency swap or is it some sort of subsidy from the Chinese to the Argentinians? So just to get a little bit boring here, the way a currency swap usually works, currency swap lines between um, central banks or state actors, is that a central bank, let's say the United States Federal Reserve, will open up a swap line of dollars with the European Central Bank. And they will then, that will be a completely liquid stream of dollars that um, can be bought in with euros from the ECB at the market rate, right? Now, what's important about that swap line is it doesn't impact the, the currency itself. So if the ECB print up lots of euros and buy lots of dollars in the current in the swap line, that should, in theory, drive down the price of the euro and raise the price of the dollar. So that's usually the way a swap line works. And usually it's just for liquidity provision, right? It's just to ensure that there is a, a deep enough market. But all of the uh, all of the news reports that I've seen around the yuan peso swap seem to suggest, both the Chinese and the Argentinians officials seem to be suggesting that this will help prop up the yuan, uh, the peso. Um, and they also see it as a way of uh, building their ever-dwindling foreign exchange reserves. Their foreign exchange reserves are constantly dwindling because the peso is constantly falling, and so they have to intervene in the market. So usually a currency swap arrangement shouldn't be kind of a, a, a subsidy, shouldn't be an attempt by the, the Chinese to prop up the peso. Usually a loan would be used but for that, you know, a hard currency loan or something like that. But every, all the news reports around this seem to suggest it is some sort of subsidy. So I don't know if it is or not, um, the, but it seems from the reporting that it is, in which case it is kind of um, a charitable giving on the part of the Chinese. So why would they do it? I mean, that's kind of the question. I, I found some Chinese reports on this, and they seem to be suggesting that the CCP, the, the Chinese Communist Party, see Argentina as a test case for getting Yuan to be held as an FX reserve. It's been a long-term test case. They, they've obviously identified Argentina because it's a large trade partner because of the soy exports to China. Uh, it's got a highly unstable currency, so they constantly need to build up these FX reserves. So it would actually be very logical to go in and use this as a test case to build up Yuan as, as an FX reserve. Of course, at the same time, now Russia, for very different reasons, is also building its Yuan uh, foreign exchange reserves. So it's definitely interesting times. Yeah, absolutely. One one thing I'm interested in is the fact that Argentina is one of that group of countries which uh, you call uh, BRICS curious, shall we say. So they have, I believe, either applied formally or certainly indicated that they would like to apply for BRICS membership. Uh, BRICS is the uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, and uh, South South Africa, uh, five countries which at the time had quite similar economies and and worked together for economic cooperation. And this is something that we spoke about for some months now, or maybe almost a year now, potentially expanding to include other countries, even countries like, for instance, Saudi Arabia. So how do you think this sort of thing might fit in with BRICS? Because it sounds to me like these countries are 
at the very least, what they're doing is increasing bilateral cooperation. That might be something quite different from increasing cooperation through a kind of a superstructure like BRICS, though. So, I, I mean, how do you see that fitting in? I think this is what we discussed last time, that if there is a transition from one currency to another, it won't actually be some sort of a coherent plan. It'll be a kind of an evolutionary uh, development from one pl- from point A to point B. And I think the Chinese, I mean, from what I can tell from their news reports, as I said, they see this as kind of a test case. So I think what could be happening here is that they are, they are seeing opportunistic uh, moments to kind of intervene in these, in, in these countries or in these markets in order to test viability for, in this case, foreign exchange reserves for the yuan, and then see how that develops from there. All the stuff that's going on right now, from the, the gold purchases we saw last week to an aggressive attempt to get the yuan accepted as a foreign exchange reserve, all of this seems to be part, not of a plan, but of a broad kind of March. I, I, I'd say it, it represents the, the desire on the part of these comp- countries to move away from the, the current system. And so we'll see a kind of gradual step-by-step. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was interesting as well was uh, simultaneously this week, or, or, or perhaps at the end of last week, there was a report that uh, the United States was getting very nervous about the Argentinians buying Chinese fighter jets because... Uh, that the Chinese wanted in order to sell the Argentinians these fighter jets, these quite modern fighter jets, they wanted to build a naval base on the southern tip of Argentina, that that kind of point where it meets Chile right at the bottom, and below that you've got Antarctica, which indeed is the reason that China wants to build a naval base there, is access to Antarctica. The Americans had apparently approached the Brits and asked if it was okay to sell the Argentinians F-16s because, of course, Britain tries to ensure that no modern military equipment can be sold to Argentina because of uh, their continuing uh, desire to retake the, I shouldn't say retake, I should say take the Falkland Islands, which is sovereign British territory. The US have said, well, look, if they don't buy F-16s off us, they will buy uh, Chinese fighter jets. And in addition to that, the Chinese will get a naval base for that. And I thought that was quite interesting because I've I, I've long thought that as Britain seems to try to or seems to want to be the fifth wheel of the American wagon all the time, uh, no matter what America does, whatever interventions and ad, foreign adventures it gets involved in, Britain seems to want to be involved. It wants to please its imperial overlord, I suppose. And I've often thought that for a small country, I mean, America is you know, it's got a fair bit of weight and heft and military and economic power to strike back if if a country tries to signal its displeasure with the United States. But Britain is far more vulnerable. And one of its vulnerable spots is the Falkland Islands, right? So I've, I've often thought that if if Russia or China wants to punish Britain for uh, Britain's uh, involvement in US machinations in the South China Sea, for example, one of the easiest things to do would just be to give the Argentinians a whole bunch of free armaments. I mean, Britain has far greater defenses on the Falkland Islands now than it did have in 1982 before the invasion, where there was very little there. I mean, we have a battalion, we've built a we've built a, a, a long airfield, we have early warning radars, we have anti-air uh, assets there, I believe, as well. But 
you know that's not the point that you know the point is if you keep arming argentina the cost of holding on to the falkland islands for britain or the cost of providing a credible deterrent goes up and up and up and up and i guess eventually the hope would be that britain thinks it's not worth it anymore so i think all of these things with argentina are interesting and it even has an effect on britain as well yeah, I saw some uh, further reports this week. They they weren't terribly well sourced, but they were about the naval base as well. Um, and they were discussing, I think it was in the Express here in London, they were discussing uh, a prominent uh, Chinese businessman lo- lobbying uh, local officials in the Tierra del Fuego district for this Chinese base. I guess that's the southernmost tip one. I guess that would be the logical um, place to put it. So I I don't I mean if if they're talking to local officials at this stage, it probably isn't at any uh, you know serious uh, point. But I suppose they're they're from what you're from what you're hearing and from what these reports are saying, there does seem to be some logic to it. I I can certainly see what you're saying about the Falklands. It, it would be um it would be a uh, a good way to uh, trawl Britain, as it were. But I, I wonder, I mean, you're usually better on this than me. I wonder, do you think that's the only reason? I mean, surely there's there's good um, uh, military strategic regions for, reasons uh, for them to want uh, a naval base in that region, right? Not really. Uh, not since the Panama Canal was built has that been an important naval choke point. So the Cape of Good Hope on the bottom of Africa is still... A naval choke point because, uh, you know, the, the the largest size of oil tankers still can't get through the uh, Suez Canal. You have these like Suez Max oil tank or Suez Max tankers in general, and bigger than that, which some are, they can't get through the Panama Canal. So the Cape of Good Hope on the southern tip of Africa is still, to a certain degree, a naval choke point. But I believe I'm right. I'm, I'm correct in saying that the, the 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 southern tip of South America isn't a naval choke point to the same degree. And I think anyway, you know, in coming decades, you might see a kind of northern corridor emerge as well. I mean, I I think the main reason for the Chinese to want a naval base there in particular would be for access to the Antarctic, which they don't have to the same extent as most of the Western powers, right? And there might be you know, resources and science and all of this sort of thing that China would want to be involved in in the Antarctic, especially if that ice shelf starts to melt a little bit. So that would be the reason for having a naval base there. It might also also be a test of the Monroe Doctrine, okay? Monroe Doctrine very clearly says that uh, no power, you know, no power shall have military bases in the Western Hemisphere. So it would be a test of the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, America spent much of the last year saying that they no longer believe in spheres of influence. Well, hmm, do they believe in spheres of influence and the Monroe Doctrine, which is explicitly a sphere of influence? So I, I think that's far more likely than any kind of strategic need to kind of control a, a, a choke point. For instance, the the base that they have in Djibouti on the Horn of Africa, that is very much a, a, a choke point for a maritime choke point, but this wouldn't be, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. I I, I wonder what America would make of it. I've been commenting a lot that America seems to uh, have lost a lot of interest in Latin America. I suppose that goes to what you're saying about um, losing interest in this kind of spheres of of influence um, 
uh, kind of framework, but it probably it does seem like it's making a comeback. I, I would make a comment on it that I don't think that the that the foreign exchange reserves and so on and China's clear desires to at least increase trade, if not actually form a naval base in Argentina, are unrelated. And I think this, uh, just for some humble bragging rights, I think this does uh, give a lot of credibility to what we're saying that these these economic developments that we're seeing between the BRICS plus countries could be very real. I, I think I think they're often dismissed as kind of like, oh, well, these countries have too many squabbles and disagreements. They'll never be able to form a coherent alliance. And there's a lot of arguments against that. But one of them is just quite clearly, I think, I think, I think the way I envisage the BRICS plus thing or something similar emerging, what we call a multipolar world, is that bilateral relations will occur first, and they'll occur on on very specific points of interest between the two countries. And then those might form into a network of their own. I don't see it as kind of a top-down formation of a bloc like the Soviets did and the the democratic countries did after World War II. Um, But the fact that they they are uh, ramping up this uh, peso-yuan arrangement at the same time as they're exploring a, a naval base, I think I think speaks volumes. I agree 100%. And I suppose that brings us back to our very first story about the WTO, that one of the solutions that Greg Ipp of the Wall Street Journal suggested, or suggested that he had heard from US officials, was that they were going to go for more of an a la carte option in terms of trade, trading with countries that they feel more comfortable with. And here we are now as well, the BRICS countries are also starting to form bilateral arrangements as well. It it seems to me very much that we could slip back into a kind of, um, you know, the the world, well, the world's becoming multipolar in in a single word, I suppose, Philip. Yeah, I I still would distinguish that the BRICs certainly are investing heavily in these in these bilateral agreements, but they are not. They are not burning down the house before they engage in them. I think that's the fundamental difference from what seems to be developing in the West and what's developing in the rest of the world. The rest of the world is perfectly happy for trade to go on as normal now and to firm up better relations between themselves. So it's a it's what I'd call a competitive approach, whereas our approach is what I'd call a monopolistic approach. It's an approach where we already have this kind of friend base or you know, alliance system or whatever. We're currently trading with the world pretty much openly, not now Russia, obviously, and, and Iran's, Iran's been out of the game for a long time, and obviously North Korea. But the, the so-called pariah, pariah states have been, up until the Russian sanctions, fairly minor players. But now we're kind of saying, oh, no, we're going to pick and choose. And we feel like we can pick and choose because we're the incumbent. We're the monopoly. We're the incumbent. And I, I again, I, I just, I'm very skeptical of that approach. I think the best approach is effectively what the Chinese are doing. They're saying, okay, we're open to business. Our doors are open for business. But we're going to compete really, really hard to get your business. And uh, that's what America used to do very well. And um, I hope I hope we don't lose it. Well, I think we are already and have lost it. I think that trade in general has been very foolishly undertaken. If you look at um, the Southeast Asian economies, which have done extremely well, they thought very hard about how they could pay their way in the world, how they could gain competitive advantage in this world. You know, we don't have to look at countries like China, which are far more controversial in the way that they went about it. But countries like Japan and South Korea and Singapore, their governments were not indifferent in the way that our governments were indifferent about what was made by whom and by where, 
where their competitive advantages were going to come from, how they were going to create jobs, how they were going to uh, climb technology ladders and create value within the systems. They thought very carefully about that, and they were very effective in enacting policies that would allow them to be successful in the free trade world. We, on the other hand, have been utterly indifferent and 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 just assumed that free trade would be a good in and of itself, and we should just let it rip. And we've seen our industrial base collapse. I mentioned numbers earlier on with the United States, where you know industry used to be sixteen percent of non non farm payrolls in the United States, and now it's only about eight percent. We've seen wages stagnate for the benefit of the Southeast Asian countries, which have seen tremendous growth because they've actually thought about it. And I think we're really slipping from the, the sublime to the ridiculous here. We've, we've gone from this kind of indifference to almost a, it's not really indifference, but it's another, it, it's the flip side of the same coin where now we're just, you know, thinking about pulling up the tariff walls because we don't like your government in effect. And again, this is the wrong way of going about it. Exactly as you say, like the, it seems to me that some of the BRICS countries are actually thinking about this, saying, okay, we're going to, in the same way that we built up our industries and then took advantage of free trade, now we're going to build up bilateral relations. And then maybe we can talk about things going into a, you know, degenerating into trade blocks, whereas we're, we're just pulling up the drawbridge, right? Yeah, I think, I think the best way to phrase it would be, we've gone from indifference to frustration. And now we're acting out our frustration. Well, Ask anyone who's become frustrated before if they uh, if they engaged in produ- productive activity while frustrated. Uh, you probably don't. You probably want to go and take a breather and cool off and see where you're where you can fix the situation and see where you can't and make some some more rational decisions. I, I I'd hope that's where we go. You've been listening to Multipolarity. Subscribe or follow for fresh episodes every week.